He, he actually, if you know this, but Mark Fisher, before he died, contacted Flood Media and said, I endorse Storm King as a political strategy. This twice, twice. It is disingenuous. Was, was the situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. We are the people who are who are like the rightful owners of Mark Fisher's legacy. Well, we can reveal on this podcast for the first time that Mark Fisher, in fact, is not dead, <laughs> and in fact, moved to Queensland, Australia, to run for the seat of Griffith. Yeah, he was actually on episode ten of Floodcast, petition me, Daddy. So you should go back and listen to that one. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, we've been keeping this a secret, but we now feel it's time to to uh, let the truth get out there. So, what are we talking about today, though? Um, should we get into who we oh, all shit. are? Yes, good idea. Oh, yeah. Declan. Professionalism. So professional. <laughs> um, I'm Declan. I'm the person who remembers when we... Oh, I don't. I don't know. I'm Declan. Um, I'm Matthew. I also don't remember that. I'm Joe. I don't remember what I'm supposed to be remembering here. So, a lot of pressure on the last <laughs> guy. <laughs> I'm Callum, and I... Who am I? <laughs> All right, well, we all said our a names. good start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking um, about Mark Fisher and particularly his piece, Exiting the Vampire Castle, this afternoon. Um, Mark Fisher's really known for acid communism, so we've all been really leaning into that lately, and that might be part of why we're a little bit um, scatterbrained. Well, he was also like a cultural... Well, he was a cultural theorist, I think, is the best way of describing him. Um, a British cultural theorist, and he died by suicide in twenty. 20- 17 I think um, but a lot of his work so I think his most famous work is, is a book called Capitalist Realism which um, is really short which is why like most I would say like most people on the left have actually read it it's one of the very few books that people say they've read and they actually have I'm talking about myself here um, but he basically Capitalist Realism uh, how would you describe it it sort of deals with this problem of shrinking horizons like the fact that we seem to live in an era where he can, he contrasts this to, say, the 60s and 70s, which he kind of sees as an era of major political possibility, um, where the the hope of kind of living differently and, and constructing different lives that weren't uh, that didn't rest on capitalist logic and mode of production seemed, if not only possible but actually imminent, uh, versus our current moment where I think his famous quote is it's easier to understand the end of the world and the end of or easier to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism and like why that is basically and what the fuck it leads to yeah like um I think the Thatcher's famous formulation was just there is no alternative Mm -hmm. or that was like the the motto of the whole Thatcher Blair period um and really at the end of history period more generally is there is now no alternative to the current system and there never, ever, ever, ever will be. And what Mark Fisher attempts to chart in his book Capitalist Realism is do we now have a generation of young people that have been uh, raised under this idea that have so completely internalised this idea that it's now entirely impossible for them to imagine any alternative to the prevailing world system? And he does that through, like, I think the mode of engagement he's most interested in is sort of cultural products. Or he he writes a lot about music, uh, movies and books and how these, like, so he he sometimes talks about how these exemplify this sort of capitalist realist period. Like, for instance, these kind of near future dystopian movies. Um, I think Children of Men is a big one. 
that he talks about, but also how like previous cultural products um, expressed like the possibility of something new, which just doesn't seem to be happening anymore. And there's a great quote, which I read out off air, so I'm now going to reread and you'll all have to pretend like it's the first time you're hearing it. Uh, so, so he's talking here about how, yeah, these kind of previous eras of uh, political possibility that were opening up in the 60s and 70s and how aesthetic forms um, in those days did not simply express, he says, some already existing capitalist reality. They anticipated and actually produced uh, new possibilities. So he, yeah, I think he, he really emphasised the role of cultural products not only to reflect what is currently happening but to anticipate and in some ways produce the possibility of something new. And that doesn't obviously happen much anymore. Yeah, I, so I haven't I haven't read Capitalist Realism. Um, I think I've read the first chapter, which is why I know it's a little bit about children of men. Um, <laughs> but I I really like Jeremy Gilbert, who um, is one of the people who I think was part of the same kind of cohort of cultural theorists on the you know on the socialist left in Britain at around that time. And he's always like one of the things that he really emphasizes that that was kind of central to this theory was just like the the sheer vibrancy and creativity that's happening in music at that time is possible for a few different reasons. And one of them is like just the, the wealth of like the, like the social democratic like contract that was part of like the Keynesian kind of enforced production of capitalism at that time meant that like this whole generation just got to grow up without, without want and mm. without like, like without any expectations of poverty in their lifetime. And so that they could just do whatever and this like strong welfare state. So it was really easy to like, just drop out and be on the dole. And mm. like some of the stuff that they, you know, talk about and, you know, I remember even growing up, like music to that, in that period was so formative to my teenage years as well. Like Miles Davis and like the electric stuff is just, you, you don't hear people trying to be like, all right, what if we completely fucked with everything right now? I found, cause yeah, I, when I read Capitalist, capitalist realism um what stuck out for me when i read it was like like i definitely got the cultural sides of it but I, you know i think i read it when i was working um f- like on the phones at centrelink and what really struck me was the shrinking um of the horizons because particularly in and i saw it a lot in work like you know at these ununionized workplaces you know contractors and low paid and just in this, you know, I was working in a workplace that was incredibly um, mentally damaging, very highly uh, surveilled. Um, most people there had mental health problems. Um, it was just really bad to work at, but there was no... Most people didn't... Like, it was just that's how it was. And that was a sort of how people talked. It's like, oh, it just is what it is. That's how... It that's is. what works like. Exactly. And, and it was just like no ability to imagine a different future or possibilities and so like just trying to talk to people very quietly about unionizing was really hard because just the idea that it could be something different mm, was just not there that isn't a mode of experience that most of us have any direct relation to and like we've never seen we've never been part of that we've never even really seen it a lot of people our age don't know what it or understand it the point of a union yeah and and yeah like the the benefits of unionization that exist currently um, are so like were achieved so long ago as to feel kind of just part of how it is, such as, you know, the weekend. Whereas I would say like a lot of the more recently won like protections and securities have actually just been um, scrapped <laughs> over our lifetimes and we don't, so we don't enjoy that. So then like, yeah, how do we make that connection? Yeah. And a lot of, yeah, 
I mean, literally, just quickly to follow on from that, it's like you're just saying, you know, things are being scrapped. Um, casualization of the workforce. You know, a lot of people living, uh, working on casual jobs wouldn't really understand, you know, how good, you know, sick leave, annual leave that were one ages ago because they don't exist anymore. Yeah, the first time I ever got paid for a day I didn't work, I was like 28 and it ruled. It's the single, <laughs> like, sickest shit that's ever happened to me in my life. And there's also a sense now that our prevailing conceptions of the future could only be an intensification of existing trends. Um, I was thinking about this in relationship to, like, all of this stuff about Jeff Bezos going into space and, like, uh, Elon Musk, you know, uh, going to the moon and forming rocket cars and all of that dumb shit, where it's like we're enthralled to an idea of the future that was developed in the 90s that is still, like... Um, reading something that tony blair wrote the other day which is just like tony blair saying well like here's what labor needs to do win elections and like here's what the future has to be and it's still and it's just like oh like it has to be the 90s but more so forever like the correct strategy for winning elections now is exactly what it was in the 90s and in fact the only possible future we could have is a continue a uh, linear continuation of that process and just a straight line just going up forever. Um, and I think there's a sense now, I think perhaps more than when Fisher was writing originally, that it's less that there is no imaginable alternative than that any alternative you can imagine is uh, buried and that like we're being artificially maintained by increasingly desperate means on this trajectory. Mm. The 90s seem to, I think, be a really important part of this because some, something that, like, they talk about is, like, you know, the, like, the sense of possibility that exists in the 60s and 70s is partly that the Soviet Union exists as, mm. as this countervailing power to, like, American capitalist, like, world hegemony. And then, you know, the, the fall of, like, Soviet Union in the early 90s and also my birth. Um, <laughs> and mine. <laughs> and, like, you know, like, what happened over that period is... is even though, like, I think the... Um, like, people talk about, like, the neoliberal kind of counter-revolution, which starts in the 80s, but it seems to be the 90s where it, it wins and it takes hold. Um, yeah, it's that kind of end-of-history narrative. And also, to a degree, in the 90s, what I think happens is the ostensibly centre-left parties actually take over neoliberalism and really refine it to its highest form. Um, it's kind of my theory, anyways. That's where you see, like, Clinton and Blair... Um, fully absorb like Thatcherite economic policies and then but then give it give it the cultural basis the the kind of fluidity and the kind of progressivism um that it would continue to like uh underpin it and in australia if you uh listen to the labor hacks on line uh keating and hawk brought neoliberalism into australia and it was a good thing because, you know, globalisation and uh, all these trends were coming and they were the ones who made Australia into a uh, global big player rather than some backwater country. Like, that's actually the comments I see from these labour hacks. Like, that's the way they rationalise these Thatcherite um, policies in Callum's Australia. Callum's our resident man in, in CSB and, uh, and the friendly Geordie comments. but only on Facebook. <laughs> on sad <laughs> like labour Facebook boomer. groups. <laughs> yeah, like I think now we're in the exact position where 
um, like the end of the end of history, we're in a position where this is no longer remotely sustainable as an economic model, but all the systems that keep it in place on an ideological level are still functioning. We're maybe just beginning to see like China take on some of the role of the Soviet Union as a, a real competitor with a different economic model, but that like also maybe not. Yeah, and I think like part of the really important part of this as well is that like the material like what was happening materially in the in the like the global economy through through the 90s was this like doubling of the like the amount of labor that was available to capitalism um you know with like all the eastern bloc or like soviet and like china as well all just like all of a sudden being like able to be invested in by capital and like that that's over now like we don't have like the the amount of labor in the system isn't increasing in any like you know as aside from like population growth etc so the like the cultural and ideological mode is there but the the kind of like material history that underpinned that is 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 over and i think that's why there's starting to be a little bit of an opening up of space but also why we can't move forward well that's what i was going to say like i think possibly since fisher published capitalist realism capitalist realism itself has disintegrated a little further like i think most people our age don't really um well i think there's more of a it's certainly more of like a consciousness that you know, a that capitalism exists, uh, which I think you know it's a the the first sign of hegemony is that people don't you know even realize it exists. But I think most people are quite aware of of this as a particular economic system that organizes our lives and and that it is one of like several alternatives. Um, and and that there's like generally high levels of dissatisfaction or mistrust towards the current system um, and the way that you know it structures our lives. But the problem is that. Yeah, there's very little in the way of alternatives. And I think that's the difference between like, you know, when Fisher talks about the 60s and 70s, he talks about a flowering of alternative of alternative ways of living of like, um, God, I've got a quote here somewhere. But it's basically about, um, uh, about um, the possibility of a life without drudgery. So basically, I guess reorganizing work is, is a huge principle in there. But a lot of these experiments were kind of happening on the ground or being imagined or thought about or en- enacted to some degree. And whereas now it feels like we have like a huge amount of dissatisfaction without much of an outlet for it. Yeah. And I think like part of like, part of where this like c- almost common sense within our generation, that capitalism is, is, is not working um, and can't continue to work is, is through like online functioning as a kind of hegemonic space. Um, but I also think that's part of part of why we can't imagine anything else is because we're, we're, we're trying to have our whole discussions through online. Some of that is to do with um, like the use of the word capitalism as an all-purpose signifier mm. for just like ambient bad energy or just like the thing that we know is doing the problems. Bad vibes. As opposed to like... Uh, trying to describe like a particular what, set of relations. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That um, in like this but not stuff. to ruin your segue into... Uh, mostly I was just saying, so like... Why we kind of wanted to talk about um, this this article exiting the vampire castle is because it was like one of the first real cancel culture articles. Well, I don't I don't know that may not be true. It's not like I'm a cultural cancel culture article aficionado. But it was written <laughs> in 2013, um, and it's that's quite a long time ago now f- yeah. to have someone on the left writing an article about cancel culture before that term really emerged. Um, yeah, well, I think it. It certainly is the first one that I remember coming across, and um, it is. But the thing about it is, I 
well, I think we should talk more about this, Callum, because you were saying before that you feel it's a little different to what um, like left cancel culture takes are like today. But to me, when I was reading it, I was like, this could have been written today. Like he was kind of the first, like the way he describes left Twitter and the way it makes you want to kill yourself is very, very... A couple <laughs> of things on it, I was stunned by how prescient they were. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I, like, I feel like I've kind of stumbled across that thought with like much guidance very recently mm-hmm. and like felt like it was a revelation when I did and then mm. being like oh he just he just wrote it like so he begins by like talking about yeah like how bad Twitter is basically well one of the things that's that hasn't me changed is, no that's well that's the, the thing right it's an article on why Twitter is terrible but it's written before that was the most played out topic in the world yeah. so when like when Fisher is like guys I've noticed that people on Twitter have um really bad interpersonal relationships it's like there's a degree to which now that's almost like a completely tried and played out observation, but also we haven't actually like resolved any of the problems. We've just like said that we've just observed them so many times that people get kind of tired of having the discussion. And I think when I was saying like it, it, it looks, you know, it's, it's an older take on it and it might, my take on it now is like it's a little, it's the same, but it's also a little bit different in some ways. Like I feel like it's... In some ways, it's weaponized a little bit more. Um, some people in this room may have experienced some of that, but I think it's definitely has been weaponized by certain elements on the, in air quotes, mainstream left to try to keep power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think that it's really interesting because a lot of that. Um, ability to maintain power is sort of being under-roaded because cancel culture itself, I think, is sort of peaked and is on its way mm. down. And I think, you know, we, I think we were talking about this before, the rise of Trump and, like, a lot of, you know, from the right-wing side of things, they just brush it off and, like, it's not really like, a, you know, Morrison can do whatever the fuck he wants the right, and he yeah, can't get cancelled unca- for uncancelable. it. Um, whereas the left, it's, like, in the, again mainstream when i'm when i say mainstream left i'm talking like laborish people yeah. you know it's like Central they will left. try to use it against people to their left to maintain their power yeah i mean i think there's something else going on with like even like uh, again what i would kind of consider like the the mainstream like radical left that you see kind of exist like discursively on twitter where where it's still alive and well and the like the only like the the take there is that like saying that cancel culture is real isn't is bullshit like it just like it obviously doesn't exist which yeah, and just that's like always mystified me <laughs> yeah there's this real like oh no see no evil kind of hear no evil stuff being like what do you mean that we live in a culture of like vexatious bullying where anyone's like anyone can make a statement that like can construct them as like an enemy of the people like yeah. I, I, i've never seen anything like that let alone like participated in it i mean surely the fact that you're suggesting that it, this even exists i mean that's kind of a I mean, you know the kind of person who would suggest that cancel culture exists, right? Yeah. Yeah, we all know that type of person. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to write get... an essay about why this person should not be listened to. I find <laughs> you get a lot of like not real. you get a lot of like warning shots when you start uh, just like saying stuff like this. You get a lot of subtweets. Um, something we have not experienced. Yeah, we don't. We've never I've had never this. Done. I want to make. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually have never experienced this because I'm not on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> Callum has figured out the way to live. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Us. Being on Facebook is also very bad for your That's brain, just in different true. ways. Um, this is I mean, true. I think. I think the the uh, common factor here, like we're talking about all the different ways in which this gets like 
what what we're glossing here is cancel culture gets weaponized against the right by people like the Labour Party against shitposters like me to try to influence the outcome of an election and within these like very small um, intra-left fights where everyone takes it super seriously. And I guess the common factor there is that none of it matters in the real world. Um, nonetheless, it is like... It's still personally it's very personally, debilitating. And, like- and I think the way that it does matter... like. I, when I say it doesn't matter in the real world, I mean none of this online discourse affects material events. Like um, Mean Girls Gate, for instance, did not swing the South Brisbane election, not even close. Um, uh, people's attempting to people attempting to cancel Trump for whatever like random racist, sexist thing he said did completely not... worked, and he's no longer president because <laughs> Shit. because of all his reply, guys. You're right. Okay, no, only that. Edit that out. I was that's wrong. Um, but but the way I think it does matter is that it ties us up in the stupid bullshit and it's like so um uh like what's the word i'm looking for it it's basically just like stops us from being able to function properly yeah well like i think it like and i think this is what um fish is trying to say in like this first section of this article is where he's saying like this this really functions as like part of the neoliberal project of consciousness deflation because you're he was saying like look i haven't been cancelled but i've seen people getting cancelled and it's made me like and like and I'm ashamed to say I didn't say like I didn't comment on it. I just like was like, Oh fuck, the bullies are in the other part of the playground and I like I want nothing to do with this. And I think everyone kind of I think a lot of people know this this sense of uh I've thought something which I'm not like wedded to as an idea, but I think it's an interesting point to make and an interesting discussion to have. But I'm not gonna do it in any sort of public realm because I think people could People could fucking have a really solid crack at me for it, um, and I could like lose, like I, I could get bullied. I could spend a day mm. or two days just like copying heaps of abuse on Twitter. Yeah, and it's easy. I mean, it's easy to say like, oh, it's not real life. It doesn't matter. Which, as I said, which is I, true. It's true. It doesn't matter. It's not real life. However, like it's personally upsetting. Like it sucks to be embroiled in one of these online arguments. Like it really. I'm sure most of our listeners probably know what I'm talking about. It really like saps your kind of energy and life force and conviction and yourself as a good person. <laughs> and like mentally damaging as yeah, well. Mentally like damaging. Can, yeah, mentally damaging. For individuals, it can like ruin careers and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what he, he kind of starts off by talking about this feeling of being too scared to say what, you know, or to, to stick your head above the rampart on Twitter, basically. Yeah. And I just want to say how much I, pr- I love. Uh, Mark Fisher's like gothic imagery in a lot of his work. Yeah, it's the vampire just, castle. Ah, oh, gothic Marxism. You yeah, love yeah. It. Well, that's just, I mean, pure Marx, right? That's, um, you know, that's where he gets that from. It's just direct from capital. Is capital is an undead beast that sucks the life from labor and all of that stuff. Yeah, the a spectre haunting, yeah. etc. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's all good it's, stuff. It's all really metal. Um, so I guess like that's kind of what he what he says in the first part is just yeah. like look there's an online culture it it sucks it makes you scared to say anything um, and so he goes on in the second part to kind of be like well there's two there's two really important configurations that create this this kind of culture and create this dichotomy and he the, the first one is the vampire castle and he calls it like the next one is like neo anarchism mm. um, what. What he kind of means as the vampire castle is, is he starts by saying that it kind of like, it started when the struggle to not be defined by your identity, which he kind of identifies in the struggles of the 60s, 70s and the kind of like the the social democratic period of capitalism, where the struggles are the struggles to 
have a secure enough material existence that you can define yourself however you wish, as opposed to, you know, being forced to work in Detroit as a car manufacturer because you're black or etc. or in the home as a woman. Um, and what that kind of struggle has morphed into a process where what we're trying to do is have our identity recognized by the dominating structure of society. Um, so if that's what he's saying, like the, the, the vampire castle kind of came from. Doesn't he also, he has a line where he says just like quite explicitly, there is no such thing as identity. That's not real. There's just different like forms of articulation of the self. Yeah. And that they're plastic can... and malleable. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, and, and that's really cool. Like we should be like, what we should be hoping for is a society where like these plastic and malleable identities can be created and changed really easily and like we're you know we're constantly like surprised by the novelty of of ours and other people's kind of like articulations of ourselves but yeah like what we've instead seen a turn to and especially in more recent years is a an even stronger commitment and coming from people who think of themselves as being on the radical left to the idea of identity as a kind of pure essence of the self that's inherent in who you are um and like shines through in all situations and that like is almost a sacred quality that you have and that like no one has a right to uh, criticize that or contend with it in any way yeah a fixed category which then also determines like how you act in politics um that you know black people vote a certain way and have certain views and women do have views on this source and you know queer people feel like this and so on um whereas yeah i think fisher is kind of well i think I mean, I think most of our listeners probably won't be unfamiliar with the idea that identities are, are not uh, stable and fixed categories, but things that emerge at particular historical moments. Uh, I don't know if I've recommended before on the podcast um, the work of Barbara, I think it's Barbara Fields. She's a black American historian, but she does um, some amazing work on how this category of race even emerged like from basically through like through the process of, of slavery and ex- colonial expansion um, and then which then needed like a justifying ideology for why uh, you know these certain populations were being enslaved and, and f- forced to produce in this way and then how race kind of came out of that rather than the other way around or racism came out of that rather than the other way around um, which is like completely out of fashion with how like most of the academy thinks about about race now as a kind of fixed and stable category that has always been and will always be and has you know nothing to do with history and it's it, well, has something to do with history insofar as, um, you know, racism has obviously influenced it's, history. Oh, it's been, it, like, race has been created, like, through a process of history and has now, like, shaped the materiality of the world in these really, like, serious ways. But there was nothing inevitable about that. Mm. Like, we could, we could very easily have a history where, where race, like, was never, was never part of a project of domination. Mm. Um, you know, but I'm sure we'd have... You know, were it to still be capitalism, I'm sure we'd have some other sort of like project of domination that creates some something similar. But but it could it could have happened in all sorts of different ways. And also, I think this stuff, um, like, comes from a need to find an explanation for why the world is so shit that isn't capitalism. Um, which is to say, like, if you don't want to come to the conclusion that there's like a an economic process that can be described that like results in class conflict and like if what you kind of want to end up being able to say is that capitalism would be fine if it weren't for all this racism uh sloshing about which means that 
if we just get rid of the racism, we can fix capitalism. But also then racism has to have this existence external to capitalism. And that kind of like, which means that like, so does race, basically. Yeah, which is, I mean, in, inherently more appealing as an ideology because it seems more doable. <laughs> like, oh, we can just, it's sort of like what we were talking about before in the kind of the, the 90s where we thought, well, if we just can like put in the right sort of, um, you know, awareness raising initiatives and public policy initiatives and pull the right policy levers, then we can solve society. Um, and obviously that's not the case, but I can see like why it appears appealing, like rather than a, st- in a wholesale structural transformation of the economic system that we live under. Um, so what, a- okay, so then what else does he say? Um, um, that's... Is that the vampire that's castle? That's the vampire castle. He, he also kind of intimates that this is coming out of, like, the university sector. Oh, yeah. Um, not, not exclusively, but he does... I think he does kind of, like, like pretty centrally say that, the like, the universities play, play an important role in this. And, and also in, um, in Neo-Anarchy. I think, personally, I think this probably comes from the fact that he's an academic and is probably a little bit shaped by that. I don't think I really agree with both these two things as being centred on, on the academy, that... It, I think it does play a role. you can certainly see that in the academy, but I think like for me, most of where I've seen this is online, um, yeah. and not like from non-academic people. I would say just yeah. like terminally online people. So he says that um, the vampire castle has five laws, um, and I think they're really good, and it's probably worth going through through them. Um, so the first one is individualize and privatize everything, um, and so he's saying like you know even though like the the people who are kind of like caught in this and and are like perpetuating this they do want to talk about structural things but what actually what actually manifests is them saying ah oh, this individual is failed in this way or and, and things of that that nature i guess yeah it reminded me a bit of how like um i don't know there was a there was a trend around probably around like 2015 2016 ish uh where people started to realize like oh calling out doing call outs is like pretty bad and um kind of destructive to like left-wing organize or like any real organization and really undermines like any feeling of collective solidarity so what we're going to do now is a call in um and so the idea is like instead of you know targeting an individual and saying you behave badly you're like look we want to call you in among your comrades and it's not your fault necessarily we know you're not a bad person and but this is why your behavior is not good but it it never worked that way, like ever, as far as I know. Like all the attempts at call-ins that I saw just ended up being call-outs. Um, and again, it was just a process of individualizing the problem. Almost by definition, you wouldn't see the successful call-ins, though. That's also true. So maybe, all right. If you've been if you've been part of a successful call-in, yeah, that's a DM call. me. <laughs> I want to know. Um, well, but a lot of this as well is, is like, look, we understand that sexism is this like, it's this totalizing force that, you know, we're all kind of inculcated into to grace or a letter extent. Also, X is sexist. Mm. So, like, like yeah. either like either it's a totalizing thing where all, like, to, to greater or lesser extent sexist, or X is, X is, like, kind of a bastion of this, this social institution who, through their actions, is maintaining it in a, in a really, like, structural and important way. Mm. Um, and, like, it is also true that you can't always just be like everything structural like yeah in the general sense that's true but like sometimes someone is just being a dick so yeah, yeah lots of people sure. actually are just sexist yeah no no like, well like almost by definition right like yeah. we're all in yeah but like this mode of individualizing everything like the like kind of resolves into this like cultural practice of just like um just 
plucking individual people out and having this kind of victim of the day where everyone gets to like rally around them. Yeah, and like, and and the other kind of side of this is where it's 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 placing placing the emphasis on on how we address these these social problems on the individual, where the, you know you have to privately like have a bit of a think about the way that you like that you reinforce these structures, which isn't to say like that's not worth doing, but it's probably not if we're hoping on everyone to like have a coming to Jesus moment. We might be hoping for a while and we've got to start getting at the structures that well, reinforce that, this as well. That's sort of like, you're talking about guilt, right? Like, a, And that's sort of one of the, there's five rules he talks about there, yeah. I think, where that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is individualize and privatize everything. The second one is make thought and action appear very, very difficult. I love this one. Actually, can I read the quote from here? Yeah, it's so good. Part of this he says is, where, where there is confidence, introduce skepticism. Skepticism. Say, don't be hasty. We have to think more deeply about this. Remember, having convictions is oppressive and might lead to gulags, <laughs> which is basically it. <laughs> yeah, that's one. That is definitely a very academic thing. Of that's like, kind of the postmodern turn in the in the academic left. I feel. Um. Any. Whenever you hear the word nuance, mm. anyone ever says nuance, just like run screaming in the other direction. <laughs> basically, oh, I use that word sometimes. Well, <laughs> you cancel Callum. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Get it. We're gonna have to have a call interview now. <laughs> um, that's a labor hack favorite. Is you don't understand how complicated this is. Oh, totally. And it's all oh. bullshit. Actually, most of the time, it's pretty simple. Yeah. yeah, and and politics are simple, and I think you see this on the left as well, where it's just like, well, are you sure? Like, are you sure you want to build power? Don't aren't you all inculcated into these these structures of injustice? If you take power, surely you'll just further those things, as opposed to under like to an understanding being like, well, yeah, but we can have intentions that might strike against that, and we should pursue that, or we're allowing power to be inhabited by people who benefit directly from these things. The third rule is the one that Callum was talking about before: propagate guilt as much as you can. Um, oh, the actual the, the line from this that I thought was just absolutely superb. The vampire's castle specializes in propagating guilt. It is driven by a priest's desire to excommunicate and condemn, an academic pedant's desire to be the first to be, to be seen to spot a mistake, and a hipster's desire to be one of the in crowd. Yeah, I really identified with that academic pedant's desire. Like since getting back into academia and doing more like reading of scholarly articles and stuff, it's just struck me how many articles get published that are just people being like aha i've figured out a way that i can accuse this other person of being neoliberal and like on and on and then just like back and forth and back and forth and it's like meanwhile i don't know i'm i'm talking specifically about my field which is like um i guess food food scholarship food sociology and thinking about like how there was this one particular article published by these authors who were like oh here's um some like uh like a school lunch program trying to like source their food from like local farmers and um that's really good isn't it and then another um uh, person wrote an article being like ah well this is all the ways in which it's bad and it's like fucking just ah (laughs) yeah like the same in literature is like the only acceptable move in academia is to get out of the out to the left of the last guy so that like um you, you know, you can kind of say anything you want as long as you can frame it as uh, this is more radical than what the last guy was saying. Yeah, it and meanwhile, like... like the thing that frustrated me the most about the example I pointed out then was I was like, the first guys are at least trying to do something different, like trying to make some kind of material change in the world, even though it's small and maybe imperfect. And it's just this mood of like constant critique, uh, which 
ends up like, yeah, you can be the most ideologically pure, congratulations. But meanwhile, like, you know, global capitalism rolls on unhindered. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all going to be the uh, the Japanese Maoist collective that move to the mountains and one by one murder each other. <laughs> um, yeah, and like, look, guilt is in fact bad. Guilt really has, like, my thing I thought the other day was just like, there's a difference between guilt and humility. Like, guilt, I think, has just no place anywhere, really, in a leftist movement, because guilt is paralyzing and it's narcissistic. And it ultimately means that you're, even though it's ostensibly like, oh, I'm so, I feel so bad because I'm such a, a white boy and my people did all of the murders and how do I atone for all of the murders that the white people did? It's like, okay, but that's still like about you and like your feelings and your place in the world. And also like, actually nobody really cares. Like nobody, nobody actually wants to be burdened with other people's guilt, mm. which is not to say that you should feel guilty about that either. But like, I think there's a difference between that and humility, which is like recognizing that you're one person out of many and that your perspective is necessarily limited as is everybody else's. And you're just going to try and do the best you can with what you have available to you and like probably make some mistakes and in fact make like a lot of mistakes and do a lot of things that will look pretty ridiculous to posterity. But there's no need to feel guilty about that. Yeah, and it, like that that really comes with the like things are complicated. And I was like, well, it's not that complicated actually. Like we know we know the path forward and it's to give it a red hot go with like doing like what you understand to be the best at the time as opposed to being like maybe we should really take a big sit down and have a think about things and like let's just see the trajectory that we're on. Mm. And I think um actually that's another big thing about cancel culture is the inability to recognize that people can grow like in genuine situations of like, you know, people can make mistakes and learn and grow from them. Um, I think I remember in like, I was watching a video by ContraPoints and that was one of her points, uh, God, that was one of her um, things was there's just this inability for people. Actually, it's a, it was in relation to like past, you know, like tweets from fucking years ago that, you know, may not have been the best light or something and they got dragged up or whatever. Um, but it's like this in a, and then suddenly, you know, that person's cancelled for something they did then when they were a fucking teenager. And it's this ability, inability to like, yeah, recognize that people can change and evolve over time. And it almost ignores the whole reconcil, uh, what's like restorative justice mm. side of things. It's like imi- almost punitive in a way. Because the point is not to, uh, like, yeah, have any kind of res- restorative justice or to, um, you know, or to yeah, the, the the point is is not about the end point of justice. The point is to make someone feel bad and also make them po- publicly apologize and say that they're a bad person. Like that is, I think that's Fisher's point as yeah. well. And 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 the next the next you know Iron Law or the Vampire Castle is to essentialize. And I think this is what's what's really happening here. And like kind of what he's describing by this is like, well, look, you know, X person can say something which is which is racist or transphobic, and therefore they are racist and transphobic is is to is that like that transitive problem problematism where like what you're trying to like to to have a bad thought or even to like articulate a bad thought makes you like it it then your identity is to be the person who is that like and and to to be that thing in the world as opposed to understanding that like well yeah probably people do have and articulate shitty thoughts mm-hmm. but also they probably articulate and 
like good ones too mm. and it's about moving forward from that point and, and building a political movement that changes history yeah, yeah. it's this almost like platonic idealism like one bad thing that you do once because you have an essential nature anything that you do is uh representative of your essential nature so like one specific bad thing that you do once that becomes that means that you're a bad person to do that thing or like uh you know one of the arguments like the formulations that you see a lot is like uh, australia is a racist country to its core or like the police are fundamentally a racist institution like not in the sense that they frequently do racist things or that like basically just that and like not in the sense that you can look at them and say gee that like they seem to be constantly doing racist things probably there's a lot of people in them which have like racist attitudes but even then racist attitudes measured by the fact that they do racist things it's like no like the police have an essential nature which is and always will be like contaminated by racism which yeah. kind of like is problematized by the fact that in the u.s at least like uh, there are a lot of black police officers yeah and like and i guess well, what at least yeah at least you to these absurd conclusions yeah. like, and this is like i think like i think it is really reasonable to say that like the queensland police are a racist institution for example but i think what it's precluding is the idea that like queensland wasn't a historical in- inevit- inevitability and neither were the queensland police like the- there is a world where police developed that they weren't racist mm. um you know, like like the town watch that police were kind of based on probably did probably developed before race. Well, they did develop before race in in, in you know medieval and even pre medieval Europe. So yeah, I mean, I think the the question of like okay, how do we decide what what an institution is like is a really interesting one, and the yeah the the thing that runs through all of this through the entire vampire castle stuff, I think, is this preoccupation with um abstract sort of the the realm of the abstract like the thoughts um and uh and uh, kind of like ideologies that float around above us and have whereas what's missing is any kind of um focus on action like what do we do like what what's actually what are we doing on the ground isn't that more constitute constitutive of what we are um than any kind of like perceived thought crimes or things we've said on Twitter or anything like that. I think that's really good for getting into like the neo-anarchy thing. The the last the last part of this like what's a vampire castle? The last law is think like a liberal because you are one. Um, <laughs> and I think that's that's exactly what what you're saying is well, like I think what what I would understand that makes me that has like defeated the liberalism in my head is is you know the immortal science of like door knocking. Of door knocking, but no, but but but, but um, by, of historical materialism, where yeah. like I think I think of things fundamentally as physical and material first, and, and as the underpinnings of the world, and I think that's what what changes things. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, I'll just like the think like a liberal because you are one. I also really liked the quote he has here. He says, um, "The VCs, the va- vampire castles, work of constantly stoking up reactive outrage." Consists of endlessly pointing out the screamingly obvious. Capital behaves like capital. It's not very nice. Repressive state apparatuses are repressive. We must protest. And I guess I feel like that a lot with, honestly, a lot of protests that I go to, or I don't really go to anymore, mainly for that reason. But particularly the stuff earlier this year around, like, the Brittany Higgins stuff and all the sort of stuff about sex pests in Parliament. It's like, yeah, the ruling class is fundamentally sick. It's infested with sex pests and it doesn't have the interests of, like, young women or junior staffers at heart. Like, why are we surprised by this? 
Anyway. Yeah, and I think so. I think why I think that this really corresponds to the neo anarchy one um, is he's he's like setting up the like the other kind of like like cultural apparatus that, that's producing this, and he says that this is kind of like fundamentally like overdetermined by like young and he like young is really important here where these are people who've been born more or less the time that we've been born where we actually haven't got to experience 25 like, years ago exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly 21 years ago <laughs> um, uh well you know people haven't got to experience um a world that isn't kind of steeped in capitalist realism and steeped in the impossibility of a different a different world and in this they like you know they their engagement with po- like with politics is largely posting on Twitter, but, you know, occasionally street protests, occasionally occupations. Um, and I think that's what he's trying to say is, like, this is this is the politics of, of this, this kind of group as well. Yeah. There's some good stuff about them um, that, yeah, again, I was like, damn, this is so prescient. <laughs> uh, so what's the, what's the neo-anarchist? Well, they're so it- basically, like, Sort of posting as praxis type people. I, posting I would say. as praxis, uh, show your power in the streets. But that's it. So is he? Like, but it's also got a rejection of. It had. Uh, it was tied in with parliamentarianism. Yeah, right? that was as in well. an like a rejection way. of it, but then an attempt to like get into it at the same time. Yeah, and so I thought this was. I was stunned by this because it's a thought I had almost like word for word, like, like earlier like, today. Like, <laughs> yeah, like a week ago, where it's just like where what's what's being articulated is look the, the impossibility of achieving anything through parliamentary means and he's talking about he's talking about britain in this this context and he's talking about people like people talking about like a refusal to engage with the labor party which i want to make it clear is the correct position in australia yeah. um but saying like you know like oh the labor party's worthless you can never do anything and these are people who grew up in the blair years so it's very like it's understandable but he's talking about the narrow political horizons where you can protest, say, you know, a conservative government cutting the NHS, but you can't acknowledge that parliamentarism is what produced the NHS. Mm. And that if you want to, like, save the NHS in the very immediate sense, the way you're going to do that is by through parliamentary policy. Yeah, but it's like, like if you recognise the power of the parliament to shape the world in a bad way, why wouldn't you represent, like, would, why wouldn't you understand its ability to shape the world in a positive way? Again, it's like a sort of easy way out where you, you can pro- you can do all the kind of relatively easy work of protesting. Um, man, I'm just sounding like a Labour Party person. Well, now. But then but then like the harder work of trying to actually, I guess, change those things through those same channels is um, already deemed to be useless. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that like what's actually happening here is is protesting is easy because you only meet people who already agree with you at yeah. protests uh, and the the work of winning this and it doesn't it doesn't have to be parliamentarianism and he, and he starts very like explicitly by saying by neo-anarchism i don't mean anarchists who are engaged in like workplace organizing mm. you know um but like the 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 work of like engaging with people who don't already agree with you finding out why not and finding out what sorts of steps need to be taken to to reach a position where both you and they do agree well like like i think with protesting it like has to be thought of as as a specific a specific tool that does specific things, and there are cases like in Chile, the massive protests in Chile formed a huge part of like the big the like the recent leftist surge there, but also then so did getting people elected to the Chilean parliament. Yeah, and like um, there's some sort of relationship of of some sort of like. Dualism, like a a dialect, a dia, a dialectic. <laughs> yeah, like um, 
Well, when people talk about neo-anarchism, I kind of think... Okay, yeah, first that there's a lot of people now who... There is a, a re-emergence of radicalism, but in this end-of-history context where it's radicalism uh, severed from any kind of tradition, because the only people who are radicals now are like... Uh, old people left over from the 70s, like uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, who have kind of fallen into these leadership positions just by virtue of the fact that there is nobody else on any level to do it. And then young people who their material conditions are such that it's like they have no option. They can't just go along with the prevailing situation because they will in no way materially benefit. Um, And also like... There's been like a massive uh, cultural liberalization, which has like meant the the death of nationalism and of religion and a lot of like like cultural culturally like right wing ideas have massively dropped off among the young. And there's all these other factors, but it means now there's a bunch of young people who like on the one hand uh, pushed into adopting like pushed towards radicalism for a bunch of reasons, but also don't really have a clear idea of like what of like what the different traditions are of the different ways of thinking about how to make that achieve a result that they want and and like what what these different traditions kind of mean in terms of the the strategy and tactics and the power that they they attempt to like build and like wield well, he would have been writing this in 2013 like in the sort of aftermath or thinking about writing it in the aftermath of like occupy and all that sort of stuff which preluded i think the burn like the when the when that failed then we see there was sort of that shift towards like the bernie sanders jeremy corbyn and i think that this neo-anarchism is really he 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 fleshed this out looking at the failures of those occupy movements yeah i think i think like the the words he uses student protests and occupations so i think he's like like occupy is obviously pretty central in his mind in terms of like well, something like really like interesting and spontaneous has happened, but it's it seems to be it seems to have fizzled out really like significantly, and let's let's think about why. But also, like I, I was gonna say, so when you start talking about this, I think we're in a stage now with like this is becoming a more familiar debate um, to the point like Marxists kind of looking at anarchists and saying, well, like you guys don't understand organization, and you guys just have one big protest, and then it kind of peters out, and like. The anarchists kind of respond by saying, well, you guys are all like statists and you guys like actually if you like look closely at it, you see that our strategies are the really effective strategies and then your strategies are actually like the waste of time. Uh, So in some ways, like there's more of a conversation around this now and like enough of one that I think you start like you start seeing some of these more anarchist tendencies uh, beginning to push back against it as well. Um, like we're obviously on like the Marxist side of that argument um, is, is very clear but like I don't know I, I always think with anarchism um, it seems clear to me that there's just a direct line between like the neoliberal thought like really even like going back to Hayek and to anarchism now whereas like Hayek famously what he says is that planning is tyranny and that's his response to socialism but also to like the whole apparatus of like the um, like the Keynesian apparatus of the 40s is like his response to that is no like any kind of centralized planning fundamentally is tyrannical um, even if it's ostensibly being done for the common good it will always result in the destruction of human freedom and then that idea got picked up 
began to like got picked up famously by Thatcher and by the right wing neoliberals of the eighties, but also really found its way into the new left anarchist tendencies of the seventies, and then was also part of the building block of like Blairism of the nineties, and like even now in like your modern like American Democratic Party is like that's relates to their particular mode of like progressive liberalism. Um, and so to me, there's like a really strong tendency in this like neo-anarchist sector of like, I would say representing themselves as like where the guys who are like actually understand what's going on, like where the guys who have the sort of platonic truth of what you do and like not, I suppose just like not, seeing themselves in a historical context um whereas to me it's like very clearly in the tradition of like hayekian liberalism which is fine if that's like what you want to do but the actual problem is that because it's cut off from this historical context it becomes much harder to engage with in a critical sense yeah and i think that's what he kind of centers as, as the basis of the like the problem with this politics is that this this very narrow understanding of politics due to growing up in a generation where you know politics was over um, but there's very narrow understanding of history where, you know, things things don't happen as part of like an unfolding process of history. Like the reason parliamentarism was so weak during the 90s isn't because parliamentarism is essentially weak. It's because it was really weak in the 90s. So what's his solution? Well, go on a door knock. <laughs> as, yeah. But, as we said at the start, um, Mark Fisher endorses door knocking. So. Yeah, he sent us a message. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good question. And I appreciate that this essay actually includes a, a part on what is to be done because most uh, left-wing essays don't. Um, so I think, he, so he starts this, like, what is to be done section by, by firstly trying to, like, explain, like, why these, like, why these two modes are actually dominant at the moment and why they're, like, their combination mm. is, has, like, is, is the dominant kind of, like, expression of, of left politics. Yeah. So he says, like, the, yeah, the first, why have these two configurations come to the fore? The first reason is that they have been allowed to prosper by capital because they serve its interests. Um, and, yeah, I guess I feel like a lot of left-wing organisations could be well served by asking at every turn whether what they are doing in a particular moment would please or displease their enemies, shall we say, like capital in this sense, in, in, this, in this context. Like, is what... I, I don't know. It's hard for me to th make this point without like calling out specific organizations, which I don't want to do. But like, yeah, basically is, is what I'm, is what we're doing here, like building power against capital or is it actually like doing the opposite of that, even though it might feel like the right thing to do? Yeah. 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 It's because I, I guess what it's, it's instead of asking you to ask a question of, of your organization, which is not, is this just, yeah, it's, it's, is this strategic? Exactly. Like, like, would our, like, do our enemies want us to pursue this just strategy or mm. do they want us to p pursue that, like that strategic strategy? Exactly. And I think it's, it's a, it's a worthwhile question. What Mark Fisher says is think like a liberal because you are one. I want to be like a little bit clearer about what I think a liberal actually is in this context versus what a, a Marxist or a materialist would be, which is, I think the liberal analysis of the analysis of the world centers ideas as historical actors, which says like, um, like ideas, uh, abstract thought, like systems of metaphor, um, like mental associations, that's the determiner of history. And what people do is determined by what they think. 
And so in order to change what people do, we have to change what they think. Um, and then the other mode of analysis is, look, if you're trying to like make political change, what people think doesn't really matter. What you start is by changing what they do. Um, and you actually just say like, look, we're going to leave your ideas alone. I actually don't care what you think in the privacy of your own head. What I'm going to say is like, look, you have to, I'm going to change the actions that you're taking, whether that be like, I'm going to make you go for a door knock or I'm going to have a strike and you're going to come along to the strike and like, you know, you're, or you're going to join a union and then through joining the union, you will see what you get out of the union or just like, oh, you, we're going to raise your wages so you'll have more time off. We're going to, you're going to be on the dole. Um, so like, we're going to raise dole so that you have more of an income so that that affects the whole rest of your life and then your ideas will follow on from there. Yeah. And like, while it's true that ideas do have an independent, like, do matter, like I'm not a entirely hardcore materialist in that sense. I well, think like, there's obviously again a dialectic relationship here like these ideas like you know the idea of race like wasn't it it, did, it didn't pre-exist you know it, like like black people and, and people with like less melanin in their skin pre-existed the idea of race but once that once that idea was shaped and the huge migrations and like like and like slavery and the, what that did for the american economy have obviously shaped material history like these ideas inform material history which isn't to say that like racism is not real and <laughs> like it's not like being like uh well actually this is just a phenotypical difference so like yeah t- technically well, like it, 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 it is. is just a phenotypical difference it is difference. just a phenotypical difference but like the idea that's been shaped around this phenotypical difference has like very real material impacts on people because of it so it's you know it's it yeah I guess I wanted to clarify that um, just to basically to make that point about like the dialectic between ideas and actions. Um, But that doesn't mean that, yeah, that the idea itself has some sort of natural existence beyond the historical conditions under which it emerged. And I think that's really, really important because if you don't accept that, then you start saying that like, well, maybe the phenotypical difference explains, say, Mm. black poverty. Maybe which yeah you is, start skull measuring. That's, Sorry, that's really fucked, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's it it obviously doesn't. We all know and we all agree it doesn't. So we first have to say like, well, okay, so this idea emerged and then that has shaped material history. Mm. Why did the idea emerge? And also, yeah, like kind of the last thing there is just like, well, obviously the internet being what it is, and especially Twitter, is very much a space in which ideas do have an exit. Like ideas are the the currency in a way that they're not in any other field of social activity except maybe a university. Yeah. And and like and this is what he's saying is is the second part of like of of why this particular mode is existing is that like what we're kind of existing is is we're starting to exist in this new mode of capitalism where like you know the, like the first mode that we've kind of been talking about tonight has been that mode of of post-war Keynesian consensus like economies of scale where things like su- like collective subjectivities are actually produced by the society you live in. You, you work in a factory with a lot of other people who all have a v- very similar experience of working in the factory to you. Then we've gone to this neoliberal neoliberal term, which is like characterized by individualism and market differentiation. What's actually how you make money as a capitalist is by finding an com- incredibly niche market and creating that market through advertising of, you know, well, actually now, you know, there's people like me who are like, who want to buy like, like Ugg boots and there's people like you who want to buy like leather, like 
Leatherman watches or whatever it is. I, <laughs> Leatherman watches. I couldn't name any products. I just couldn't name a product. <laughs> uh, guess what I'm wearing on my feet. Um, and so, like, like that's kind of thing. And then what we're starting to enter now is this this new kind of like mode of capitalism of of platforms like being these huge kind of like al- algorithmic determinants of behavior where whether it's uber where we start having these algorithms that kind of like like allocate labor in like an, an efficient way or whether it's twitter which like it just like mops up data of people's opinions and interests in order to like sell that sell that on or even not even really necessarily knowing what it's for at this point like we've we've entered this this different kind of stage, and that stage is like I, I've heard it recently called like platform capitalism, but but Mark's referring to it here as communicative capitalism. And the way that like because we all are existing in cyberspace, unlike unlike another time where like these politics couldn't actually did exist, you could just walk away, mm. or like you know you you could not buy their paper, but now you could just be permanent. You actually permanently logged off as a state of being. Yeah, like. like Whereas now that you weren't logged off because logging on well, didn't exactly. mean anything. It was just so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that meme of um, I can't remember, but it's like basically shows like the underground tunnel of like people just completely losing their minds at each other on Twitter, and then just above the surface, like just a guy who logged off, <laughs> just oh. living his life up there, <laughs> unaware that any of this is going on. <laughs> so beautiful, and yeah. so like like part of like why this this political kind of like combination of the vampire castle and neo-anarchism is is actually shaping the left politics is because left politics is happening online yeah so therefore oh what do we do jeez maybe get offline i feel like we've talked about this on the show maybe once or twice before uh but yeah i mean also the thing that we talk about a lot which i'll just repeat here for you know the, the sake of our listeners who haven't heard me say it before is that like it's a very small minority who live their lives like this online. Like most of the people that, you know, you theoretically want to convince or bring along with you in a leftist project are already logged off. Like they don't know or care about any of this shit. It's fine. Like go join them. (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of the final, like, that's the thing of like, once you log off, you're like, Oh wait, none of that mattered. Oh, hang on. Like what was that all a strange dream I had? Like, but I think it's not just enough to log off. I think Mm -hmm. you also need to go talk to, people i think that's the second part is log off and then talk to people who aren't online this kind of brings you like a point i maybe wanted to finish up with is do we reckon now at this stage we are beginning to emerge from the vampire's castle because Uh, what do you mean by we like i don't know the world the planet of earth like because i I think that (laughs) (laughs) well look i think the planet of earth most people have never entered the vampire's castle no like you're saying because i I like the political left when Mark Fisher was writing this, Mark Fisher wrote this in 2013, which is like, in many ways, I think, the height of online social justice culture. And this was like, uh, Obama was president. It was the era of like, it's almost hard to reconstruct now because I actually think it's gotten a lot less suffocating than uh, since then in some ways. That was the height of like, I always think like the feminist blog era and like the Tumblr fan fiction era um, and a point at which like, like even, like even kind of, I don't know, pre-Gamergate, stuff like that, the point where this stuff had kind of taken over the internet, but before even the emergence of the alt-right, to like, before anyone was like beginning to say like, hang on, I don't like this. Um, and so, and once like, that started, and like, you know, that kind of uh, led to the election, well, not that specific thing, but like eventually Donald Trump was elected, 
And that made a lot of these people a lot more defensive because at the point of, like, when it was Obama was president and then they all just took it for granted that Hillary Clinton would be president after that um, and then someone else would be president after that and, like, no alternative would ever emerge to this kind of... We would just kind of gently slide into this progressive utopia. And then that idea was destroyed by Donald Trump, basically. And then I think as well as the, you know, during the Trump years, I think that particularly from the like the liberal left um, online cancel culture crowd, I think that sort of their um, hegemony sort of started to crumble when their contradictions were sort of revealed, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, getting up at, angry at Trump for doing certain horrible things, but then they're backing people like Joe Biden, who also does not great things as well. And so I think their contradictions sort of came to the fore more. And so I think that sort of has led to, you know, the crumbling of that vampire castle a little bit and where it's sort of starting the peak heading downhill. I think to some, I think to some extent, I I really disagree um, because I think what we, what, what, I think we're just as much in it as we were. Um, I think like the, I still think the dominant mode of thinking about left, left politics amongst people who would call, like think of themselves as radical lefties is is still very much like but there's this different frame. spheres i think when there we are talk different about spheres. like um because there's like again i'm talking more about like the more liberal cancel culture sort of thing a bit more mainstream whereas i think there's another sphere of like you know um ra- what you're talking about radical lefties you know more your anarchists anarchists versus marxists yeah sort of thing there's different spheres in and that. I, th- I think like the the sphere you're talking about of like like Particularly, like with with Kamala Harris being like a monster, but also like a PO, like like a a walk of hero. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's is, like an, it's like that appropriation of that like, sort of language. It is being appropriated, but I think like power power doesn't care if it's contradictory. Like I don't think power is like in any way weakened by the contradictions of of taking in this discourse. I think what we've no, seen is the CIA woke at the CIA woke at like like it's it's not like that that does any damage to the CIA in any meaningful sense like their their ability to shape history. So I think what we've seen is this this particular mode that like emerged from the online left increasingly enter into the like into the dominant sphere of society and I don't think that means it's I don't think because that's happening it's starting to to lead the online left. Um yeah, no, I don't I, th- I agree with you on that. I don't think it's leaving the online radical left, but I think it's like done this weird thing of, you know, you've got this going back to the CIA woke ad because I think it's such an absolute fucking masterclass in how this language has sort of become pervasive. And she's like, that sort of thing now has sort of really, I think, I don't know, maybe because I'm not on Twitter, I don't have a good look at it. But from what I think anyway, I just think it's like, it doesn't seem to be as um, uh, legitimate as it used to be. I think a lot of people sort of go mm, with it if they're not in that online radical left. Yeah. So I, I think I agree with both of you in a way. Like I feel like, so I feel like it's definitely more acceptable to not be in the va- like to not accept the vampire castle kind of premises as someone on the left. And I think that's because there is like somewhere for you to go if you don't accept that. Like there's a there's a much larger group of people who have publicly been like no i don't basically agree with 
um, this kind of mode of engaging with the world and... And your natural home is the Queensland Green. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, commentators and podcasters all across online are uh, speaking out. Uh, whereas I think that wasn't really happening in 2013. Like we said, like Mark Fisher was kind of the first guy to be like, this seems not good. Whereas I, now I think there are a lot more people doing it. And the I think that one reason why this kind of gained traction and has become more of an option was because people had something to do with that energy like through mainly through the Bernie campaign to be honest um, and then maybe in the UK it was Corbyn and, and now that that has n- neither of those turned out I think it will be certainly interesting to see what happens and whether there's some kind of reversal or something else happens in that space. There's an interesting turn towards localism happening mm. in Britain at the moment. Like I've like discussions of the Greater London Council, which is kind of what like the like the left project that was happening in, in like the defeat of, of Thatcher. Like Thatcher ended up disbanding the, the Greater London Council. But for a little while like it was it was totally controlled by like the, the socialist elements of the Labour Party and it was doing like wonderful wonderful stuff yeah i saw a jacobin article just now about like a pre- preston i think that there's the local yeah uh, the local council where apparently they're all socialists uh anyway um so yeah i think there was a there was a real moment and energy where people like we've said like a, a, a huge component of this is not only disagreeing but being able to like redirect your energy towards something more meaningful and concrete on the ground and we had that for a little while um that said like yeah i whether whether or not like this this turn away from the vampire castle impacts anything in terms of like the power of the CIA, for example, um, yet to be determined. (laughs) Well, like something I've seen more of recently is like you get more, like I have seen more pushback from like the vampires, basically. Um, I've seen like a lot more of this discourse. There's like, ah, and those like fucking Marxists are always telling us like we're not being realistic and practical. Those guys are exactly as bad as the capitalist kind of thing, and like or or the weak parliamentarianism that like that has existed through their lifetime, but they saw not do anything. Mm. Mm. And I think it's just like I don't really know if there's a way we could talk about this without just being like, guys, like this is how it really works. Yeah, I mean, Um, I think it's it's a very um don't tell show yeah 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 that's that's that kind of i guess that's kind of what i'm getting is it's just like us just like saying well it's actually like this that is actually not really going to change anything like it might help people to at least understand like how we see it or at least help people to express stuff that they've kind of half thought themselves but like actually just having this podcast probably doesn't really change a lot of minds oh no no that's not what we've recruited i would say up to four volunteers through this podcast (laughs) and i'm proud of it i think though declan yeah i I think the question of whether or not we are in or out, I think maybe for most people who are just coming to left-wing politics, their primary mode of engagement or the thing they first encounter is more of this kind of vampire castle stuff. And that's seen as maybe that is still dominant in a way. And I think what's changed, though, is that there is a viable alternative that's much more accessible than it was, say, five years ago. And, and I think, like, like if the project that we're hoping to build um, and increasingly successfully building is to is to continue to grow in the way that we, we want, a lot of people are coming into into like into politics in this very different way. Like mm. it's so great. You just recruit so many people who are like, "What's what's Twitter?" And you're like, "It, it doesn't matter." <laughs> like, and when we grow the project, and you know that's the aim of it, because to win you need to grow. You know, the more people you bring in, you're going to be bringing in all the different flavors of humanity. Everyone is different. Everyone is rough around the edges. Not everyone is going to be this perfect. You know, if you want to, we're going to be reaching out to the more and more of the working class which isn't this perfect like has the be- you know the um 
the perfect language and everything. They are going to be rough around the edges in terms of when it comes to sexism, racism, and that sort of thing. Like everybody is, exactly. I would say. And so I, I mean, think I'm that perfect. <laughs> you are perfect. Yeah, man. apart from that. Um, but it's like you know, it, and it's really important to be exiting the vampire castle with that because otherwise you're going to be cancelling whole bunch of the working class which you need to be bringing along with you to gain power to win yeah the thing is you can link arms with someone who doesn't think very much of you so long as you both like know that you think a lot less of the boss who's actually trying to you know who your fucking enemy is yeah and i think like that maybe just to wrap up soon but the that process is kind of what in the end changes minds like far more effectively than public cancellation like the um, God, there was a doco a few years ago. I've forgotten its name, but it basically it was about the alliance between um, the early like LGBTQ movement in Britain and the the miners, and how there's that famous um, picture of a, a protest or a strike in London where they're holding up a sign that says like "Gays and Lesbians for the Miners," and the miners. I mean, you can imagine like these guys were not like the most like queer friendly people, but through that alliance, like the I reckon, like, a lot of them did change their minds. Oh, um, absolutely. Because once you've experienced solidarity with then someone... Then you're like, oh, this is like, just a person like me, and actually we have a lot in common. Anyway. Should we finish with uh, the end quote from his article? Oh, there's Henry? one I thought was just fantastic about, like... So so what what, what he says is, like, we... Um, our struggle must be towards the construction of a new and surprising world, not the preservation of identities shaped and distorted by capital. And if this seems like a forbidding and daunting task, it is. But we can start to engage in many prefigured activities right now, like door knocking. Um, actually, such activities would go beyond prefiguration. They would start a virtuous cycle, a self-fulfilling prophecy in which bourgeois modes of subjectivity are dismantled and a new universality starts to build itself. We need to learn or relearn how to build comradeship and solidarity instead of doing capital's work for it by condemning and abusing each other. This is perfect. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. Okay. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Bye. 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 <laughs>